the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We can help your company and your employees look forward to tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week our focus is on the latest Brexit negotiations between Britain and the EU and the pros and cons of PCP car loans. In the first half of the show, our Europe editor Paddy Smith brought us up to date on the Brexit talks between the EU and the UK, while our markets correspondent Joe Brennan took us through the latest jobs wins for Ireland. Omber Kennedy also joined the conversation. In the second half of the show, you'll hear Michael McAleer, our motoring editor, take us through the pros and cons of PCP car loans, which are becoming more and more popular with Irish consumers. He explains why the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission has decided to carry out a study of the PCP market here. Don't forget, you can download this podcast for free from iTunes, and you'll also find it on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. Okay, we'll begin with Brexit. I'm joined in studio by Joe Brennan, a markets correspondent with the Irish Times, by Owen Burke Kennedy, a reporter, business reporter with the Irish Times, and by Paddy Smith, our Europe editor. Paddy, uh, I think this is the first time we've had you on the show since you uh, returned to Brussels uh, uh, as Europe editor, having been there uh, many years ago, and you're you're straight into the action, as it were, with these uh, Brexit negotiations that have uh, been getting underway of late. And this week, an important week with British negotiators meeting with Michel Barnier and his team. Tell us about what what exactly they've been discussing. Well, the talks on Brexit have been divided up into three main streams, and they are in the hands of various working groups uh, that will negotiate all week and then report back to Barnier and David Davis uh, on Thursday when uh, Barnier is supposed to give a press conference telling us all how it's, it's gone that the three strands are citizens' rights, which are about the rights of uh, UK citizens in Europe and European citizens in in Britain after Brexit. The financial settlement, uh, which is uh, the Brexit bill for the, for the British. And the third strand is Ireland and related issues to the border um, and uh, common travel area. OK, let us uh, maybe take the Ireland stuff first. Has there been any progress made or what outline um, have both sides given to each other in relation to that? Well, it's very early. Uh, So basically what both sides are doing in all of the strands are setting out their respective positions and comparing them, comparing notes. So we're not really down to the nitty gritty of of making concessions or, or, or big changes. On the Irish issue, what is interesting is that the uh, negotiators on both sides, the EU and uh, the, the uh, UK, are, are more or less agreed on what is to be done. They're tra- travelling in the same direction. And uh, it's a question of mapping out in detail what the implications for uh, Brexit, uh, of Brexit are to a whole street series of, of uh, elements of the British-Irish uh, relationship, uh, specifically uh, the common travel area, uh, which all agree should be preserved, uh, and the what are called the aspects of lasting aspects of the of the um, Good Friday Agreement. Now these are uh, a number of things. They range from 12 areas specifically mentioned in the Good Friday Agreement of north-south cooperation, ranging from in energy to tourism and, and the like, and with the uh, and uh, other issues like citizenship rights, which are also referred to in the Good Friday Agreement, where uh, northerners who take out southern citizenship 
uh, are entitled to European citizenship and will continue to be European citizens after Brexit. Right, OK. Um, Joe, you've been reporting on the number of jobs that might be coming here. Uh, and this week you had a story about Citigroup and Bank of America Looking, uh, it looks as if they're going to announce uh, an expansion of their uh, operations in Dublin. Um, and in the the way, the political way that these things work, um, they won't necessarily call it out as a Brexit investment, but some of it is inevitably related to Brexit, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose um, um, uh, the banks and insurers they haven't got the the flexibility to wait. They have to make decisions now. And last week we had uh, a deadline set by the Bank of England for regulated firms in their in its jurisdiction to uh, outline to them uh, to regulators what their contingency plans are. So we're seeing. More announcements being made in recent times. We saw on Friday that Barclays had confirmed, had been well uh, flagged in advance that it was going to make Ireland its a uh, uh, post-Brexit EU hub, and there's an expectation that about 100 to 150 uh, staff will 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 move across to Ireland as a result mm. of that. What kind of jobs are these? Well, Barclays is interesting because Barclays is probably going to be a good deal of front office trading jobs. Uh, unlike some of them, just uh, we're reporting there during the week about Citigroup. Uh, Citigroup is more likely to be more kind of back to mid-office type jobs. Uh, it's likely to be confirmed the next day or so that Frankfurt itself will become the, the trading hub for uh, the, the EU trading hub for, for, for Citigroup itself, even though it's got a much smaller uh, work base in, in, in Frankfurt than in Ireland. So in, in Frankfurt at the moment, about 350 uh, Citigroup staff, if you compare that to Ireland, it's about 2,500 in the Republic alone. Um, so we'll see, probably see... By stealth, we'll probably see, you know, uh, over the next few years, critical operations moving over to Ireland uh, as a result of Brexit, and that will be used to maybe expand further in Mm. time. Again, it's going to be very hard to decipher what actually is Brexit related and what isn't. If you look at another bank, uh, JP Morgan, well known um, in recent times for for, um, flagging. Yeah, yeah, so for for flagging uh, that it's uh, planning to expand uh, pretty dramatically in in Ireland. It has less than 500 uh, in Ireland, but it's bought a, a, a building under construction down in the South Docklands which would allow it to um, double the amount that it has and it's also looking to potentially uh, rent further office space. Again uh, a lot of the activity that will actually, that the expansion will be down to non-Brexit related activities. You, uh, They are expanding their fund administration and services. So jobs that would have come here anyway regardless. Exactly. But there will be some Brexit related jobs and again uh, these companies haven't really got their heads around it as to what actually would move across in time, but you would expect a, a couple of hundred of, of, of back office to mid office type Brexit type jobs. Again, JP Morgan has flagged that uh, that Frankfurt will be its post Brexit EU trading hub. Um, another uh, company is Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Mm. Um, it's got a sizable operation in Ireland, most of it down in, uh, in Leopardstown. Uh, it also has an office in, in, in Hatch Street in, in the city centre as well. It's, it, it's, it's looking to extend its lease on the, the, the property down in, in, in Leopardstown, but it's also looking to take out another 20,000 uh, square foot or, or 2,000 square, uh, square so metres of future proof in the business, essentially. Yeah, so we'd expect a, a couple of hundred maybe jobs mm. uh, so coming from, from... Again, we're expecting an announcement from, the, from them in the next few weeks, but whether we'll actually get figures put out there as to what it yeah. will entail... Well, I was going to ask you, can we say with any degree of certainty how many jobs are going to come here as a result of Brexit? Not at all, no. 
Right. Or how many have already been announced? Uh, very few. I mean, there's been a number of announcements in terms of what, com- what companies are doing or, or, or at least flagging what companies are uh, planning to do. But there's been very, very little by way of detail as what companies are actually uh, in terms of jobs. Barclays is probably the closest we have, but 100 to 150. Yeah. Uh, Paddy, just in terms of these jobs, I mean, Ireland isn't the only one looking for these Brexit investments. Uh, Paris has been uh, pretty aggressive, I think, Amsterdam, Luxembourg. There's been talk of regulatory arbitrage accusations uh, flying around from Owen Murphy when he was a junior minister at the Department of uh, Finance. What's the mood like in Brussels in terms of the competition for for these jobs? Well, I think think the discussion in Brussels is mainly about... um, the European institutions that are going to be uh, going to have to move from from Britain, and and there of course there's a very uh, strong competition, particularly for one that the Irish are interested, in, which is the European Medicines a- a- Agency. But mm. there's two other, the Banking Agency and and uh, and another agency which are which would be substantial plums if they can be won. Uh, so that that would be the main focus in Brussels. And what what are our chances of the European Medicines Agency being allocated to here? It's very interesting. Uh, I, I, I honestly don't know. The answer is that there's been a great deal of negotiation going on uh, at um, civil service level about the way in which the decision will be made. And uh, Ireland has um, made sure that the decision is going to be made on what they call objective grounds rather than on, mm. on, on any other uh, terms. Uh, for example, the, the the ministers agreed that, that there wouldn't be an attempt to spread the the agencies geographically. It was much more important to get uh, an agreement that the, they were going to the places that were, they were better suited to. The commission will recommend uh, which uh, of the applicant uh, countries are, are, are best suited. So Ireland's in there with a the shout, but uh, I wouldn't put my money on it. Okay. Owen, it's not all honey and jam, if you like, from the Irish perspective in relation to Brexit. The uh, fall in the value of sterling has hit our exporters. And uh, Kevin Toland, who's soon to step down as chief executive of the Dublin Airport Authority, which operates Dublin and Cork airports, has said just a few days ago that uh, the number of visitors coming from Britain is falling like a stone. Okay, I suppose uh, since the the referendum last year, the impact um, has mainly been centred on the depreciation in sterling. Um, and I suppose the most direct impact of that here has been reduced profitability for Irish exporters, and we've seen their margins cut quite severely. Mm. And we've seen, uh, I think, six mushroom growers, for example, have gone out of business, haven't they? Exactly, yeah. So, um, you know, the, the, the reduced buying power of the British public, though, has begun to spread further afield. And what we're seeing, um, you know, quite uh, strongly now is a reduction in tourist numbers mm. coming what, here. What, down about 7%? Visitor numbers down about 7% year to date? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure of those figures, but um, I was just uh, referring to what you mentioned at the at the outset. Uh, Kevin Tolan's remarks were, mm. were quite, um, you know, strong. Uh, he said um, basically British people flying into Dublin Airport was falling like a stone amid growing uncertainty about Brexit. Now he said the overall figures were kind of up, but the increase in business was concealing a decline in British travellers to the Republic. And a very similar message came out of the Irish Hotels Federation earlier this week as well, where they announced an increase in bookings, but they said that was masking fewer bookings from the UK. So I suppose the big question here is, is is the government government sufficiently um, accommodating itself to the impact of Brexit? You know, and uh, at the moment, it's it's modelling, its forecast suggests that a hard Brexit is going to 
shave about 3.5% off our GDP over the first five years. It's going to have impacts mm. on the fiscal But it's space. all finger in the wind stuff, really, isn't it? It is all finger in the wind stuff, and that's uh, what a lot of people think, uh, you know, the government's forecasts are a little bit too optimistic. Um, IBEC, for example, are, um, you know, calling for a billion pounds to be, a billion euro, mm. I should say, <laughs> to be set aside uh, to assist companies. They would... Um, want the government to seek some derogation from the EU state uh, aid rules to facilitate this. But it's just almost impossible to predict at this stage, given the level of uncertainty we're seeing. Paddy, there was a very striking photograph in uh, national newspapers and on the wires and so forth earlier in the week where Michel Barnier and his negotiating team were on one side of the table, uh, each person having a large stack of papers in front of them. And David Davis, uh, the UK Minister for Brexit, and his negotiating team on the other side of the table with no papers in front of them. And it, it kind of led, lent itself, if you like, to the accusation that perhaps the British negotiators uh, just aren't as well prepared as their EU counterparts. Now, I know they've rejected that suggestion, but I'm just wondering from your vantage point, um, what's your opinion on how well prepared uh, the British are versus the EU side? I, mean, I think what we saw um, at the end of last week was a flurry of, of papers from the British side uh, setting out their position, and that these were really uh, the first sign that uh, serious thought had been going on in, in Britain. The, a lot of the mood music from London is about rows and, and, um, and arguments within the cabinet about what they should be doing in their strategy, giving the impression that, that the British are, are facing several directions at once. Uh, it's becoming slightly clearer that they have at least they're pointing in the same direction now, and, and uh, they certainly resent uh, strongly the suggestion that they're not properly prepared. Uh, and in the discussions that they've been having this week uh, with the um, European Commission, they've been going out of their way uh, to ask uh, detailed questions, which try to show that they are at least on top of their brief. Yeah, and more importantly, I suppose, from our point of view, how well prepared is Ireland? I mean, some people have called for a minister for Brexit here. We do have a new minister for foreign affairs, Simon Coveney, who I think is uh, taking on more of the Brexit duties now. So how well prepared are we, given how important it is to the Irish economy? Well, I think uh, most people here would agree that that the Irish are uh, superbly prepared and that the networking that they've been involved in, the briefing by them of the Commission on on Irish uh, issues has been superb. And I, I, I do have to say that's just not uh, soft soap. It's, it's, it's something that, that is being said um, by more than Irish diplomats. It's being said by uh, commission officials and, and uh, by other observers here. Right, OK. Joe, you wanted to come in? Just in terms of, 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 of the efforts, and certainly uh, when it came, comes to, to, to Brexit uh, and, and looking to... to to lure some uh, financial activity from London. London, Ireland has kind of gone about it differently to say the likes of France, which has kind of gone in all guns blazing and has been fairly uh, upfront in its efforts to uh, to steal um, uh, jobs from from uh, from from London. Whereas Ireland has kind of tried to work with 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 the UK to an extent, and and uh, it would have a lot of relationships with a lot of international firms, mostly doing kind of back office kind of jobs and just going to them quietly, just trying to assess what what their needs would be rather than going in and saying look we're looking to take these jobs from 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 the UK and and you see in so far uh, for Paris it hasn't really kind of borne much fruit 
uh, HSBC is the only one that really is the only real major win uh, that, uh, that 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 Paris has had so far. Mm. Now, you're just going back to um, regulatory arbitrage. I think maybe what was playing out a, a number of months ago was not so much regulatory arbitrage, but supervisory arbitrage. The regulations are the regulations, but supervision, there's a spectrum between uh, having a, bla- mm. a brass plate outlet and having the And whole. it's a little fuzzy on the insurance side, isn't it? Particularly on the insurance side, and and we've we've seen a number of wins, uh, particularly for, for for Luxembourg in that space. Uh, companies that you would have expected or w- were expected to 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 move to Dublin, uh, you saw the likes of uh, AIG deciding to set up its its EU base uh, in 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 Luxembourg. Uh, you also saw Hiscox, which is a Lloyd's of London insurer, and maybe less surprisingly so. RSA uh, also deciding, given that it's had a pretty troubled uh, recent past in in Ireland in in recent years. Um, Again, more recently, insurance companies, we've seen a few wins in Ireland. Uh, We've seen the the central bank uh, approve two uh, fellow Lloyds of London insurers, uh, Chaucer and, and Beasley. Again, not huge amounts of jobs. You're talking maybe... 10 to 15, 20 jobs mm. in, in in each space. And the um, ECB has initially. made it very clear that it doesn't want brass plate operations setting up anywhere as a result of Brexit. Not just the, the ECB, ESMA as well, which is in charge of securities. You have the, the Irish regulator here being very much along those lines as well. It wants to see firms that are setting up in Ireland to have the mind and the will of that operation in Ireland so they can have those kinds of conversations with people who actually decide what's going on. Yeah. Finally, Paddy, are we any closer to determining how much this financial settlement is going to cost the UK as a result of Brexit? There was talk of $100 at one point. Boris Johnson said in Westminster recently that the Europeans could go and whistle in the wind for that. But there seems to be an acknowledgement, at least, on the part of the British government that there is a bill to settle. There is an acknowledgement that there's a bill to settle and that they, have ob- that they have obligations, but they won't go beyond that. They're not even prepared to acknowledge that the payment that will be made when they leave uh, is going to be in the Brussels direction. Uh, there's some suggestions that, 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 that all of the assets that they will want to slice off might mean that the Brussels pays them. Now, that is, that's pretty preposterous by any calculation, but the British aren't even prepared to acknowledge uh, that there will be a payment in the direction of Brussels. And um, the talk of $65 billion, there's a general consensus in Brussels that that, that is the order of magnitude um, of, of what EU 27, 27 member states regard as, as a necessary order of magnitude. Uh, the British won't contemplate discussing that and... Uh, they are arranging the discussions so that there will be no figure mentioned until the very end of the discussions at the end of next year. Uh, if we get any discussion, any decision um, between now and uh, October, which is the first crunch date for the negotiations, it will be of a, a, an agreement on a methodology for calculating that figure. But we certainly won't have a figure. Okay, and is that a euro or a sterling figure, just to be clear, Paddy? Euros. Euros, okay. Billion euro. And there's another calculation which adds in agricultural payments, uh, which pushes it up to 100 billion. Uh, so somewhere between those two is, is okay. the general consensus here. And just in terms of the EU budget going forward, with the UK no longer part of the mix, uh, will Ireland have to pay a bigger slice of the bill, as it were? Well, that's very much um, a moot point. The, the, um, Ireland is hoping that the financial settlement 
by the British will be such uh, to complete in full the uh, the financial framework uh, payments until the end of 2000, uh, 2020. After that, it's uh, in the lap of the gods. Uh, the absence of British payments will certainly mean um, the budget will either have to be scaled back or countries like Ireland will, will have to make bigger contributions. All right, and finally, finally, Paddy, um, are you enjoying your second stint in Brussels? <laughs> Not yet, but I will. I'm sure it's it's fascinating time because of the, these discussions. Uh, but uh, the, the, the Brussels bureaucracy is, is notorious, and uh, uh, I'm still fighting my way through uh, through that. All right, well, we wish you luck with that. Paddy Smith, thank you for joining us, uh, and thanks also to Joe Brennan and Owen Burke-Kennedy. Uh, we'll take a short break now, and we'll return with a review of PCP Car Loans with our motion editor, Michael McAleer. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Now, welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Let me just remind you that you can download this podcast for free from iTunes and it's also on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. I'm joined in studio now by Michael McAleer, Irish Times motoring editor, to discuss PCP car loans in the Irish market and why the Consumer and Competition Protection Commission has decided to examine this market. Um, Michael, you just might explain to us what exactly a PCP, a personal contract plan, what exactly it is and why it's become so popular in the Irish market over recent years. Well, it is quite complex, but ultimately what you're doing is you're going in with a deposit, normally your trade-in. To buy a new car. To buy a new car. It's always to do with new cars invariably at the moment, but it can work on used models as well. You go in with your trade-in, there's a deposit to be paid on the new vehicle, exactly the same as a normal car, a normal private personal loan, the old traditional car loans. The difference is that what the car companies do is they create a guaranteed minimum future value. So it's what the car will be worth at the end of the contract. It's a three-year contract, and they say... If you keep to this mileage limit, if you service it, if you look after it to our standards, we will guarantee that this car will be worth 18 grand, mm. for example, on a 40 grand car. So this car will be worth 18 grand in three years time. And that's what we will stand over. So then what they do is they think, right, well, what you're actually paying for on a monthly basis is the use, the middle of that. So deposit and guaranteed future minimum value. So it's almost like a car rental for those three years. Exactly. You don't necessarily, I mean, it's a HP model. It's, it is a HP. It's a, it's a form of HP. But the unique element of PCP is this idea that they take out the element or they, they account for the value of the vehicle at the end of the deal and they accept that they will take the vehicle back. They have three options at the end of it. One is you hand the vehicle back and walk away, accepting that you've lost your deposit, or you've not lost it, but your deposit and your monthly fees with what it costs you to motor over, to, to use a car over those three years. Well, you've lost that equity in the car, effectively. You have lost that equity, but in, in fact, it's, it's a cost of usage. Um, because ultimately, if you did the exact same thing with the, with the traditional car loans, if you sold it on, mm. you'd be, find yourself largely in the same situation. The other alternative is that you pay that guaranteed the outstanding uh, a, a loan or value on the vehicle so you buy the car off them for that piece you can take out a bank loan if you wanted to do it or whatever way you so want it's a big lump sum it'd be a sizable lump sum for example on a 40 grand car you're looking at 17 or 18 grand 
Right. Now, when you say a 40 grand car, what kind of models are we talking about here? What would, what would 40 grand falls buy? into it. I mean, as a, uh, the, the, the model actually was created back in the 90s by Ford to flog small cars in the US and it was brought across. So you can, you're talking about in, in the UK market, for example, you can buy Fiestas, anything. But let's say a 40 grand car, your traditional BMW 3 Series. So with BMW, you're talking about a uh, 40 grand BMW. You will rock up and you will pay a deposit. My preference to avoid carrying too much debt into it would be keeping the deposit relatively low. The normal range is sort of 10 to 30 percent. So let's say you go for 17 percent, so seven grand out of the 40, 40 grand. You come in, that's your trade in value in the car. Then you're paying a monthly and that's probably about four four five hundred a month over the three years. And they put a value of 17 or 18 mm. at the end of it. The likelihood is, if you kept the car properly, that when if on the on the open market, that car is worth 25, 20 to 20, about 23, 24, 25 grand. So the difference between that and the GMFE they're giving is what you will carry on as a deposit to the next car, or alternatively, you can buy the car. That's the third option: is that you flip to another PCP and you take what the yeah. equity at the call the equity the amount the difference between their minimum value that they put in the car and what the actual value of the car on the open market would be and that's what you carry on to the next deal so you come Let's out of it again. every three years mm. you get a new car the benefits there if you keep your mileage stable to meet their standards obviously they have to they have to put a value so on the car. So what kind of mileage do you get? It depends. I mean, various people have said to me, you know, is it always 15,000? No, it, it really depends. It's what it, The key thing is they base the, the, the value, the future value, on what the car is going to be like when it arrives in their doorstep in three years' time. So if you tell them you do 40,000 a year, they'll take account of that. If you tell them that the problem for them is they're saying, right, we, we guarantee this car is going to be worth 18 in three years' time based on the fact you do 15 a year. But if you rock up and leave 150,000 on the clock, the, the value of the car has gone down and they can't stand over that value anymore. Likewise, if you change things, mm. if, if it's badly damaged, it's the exact same thing if you walk, roll up in a trade-in. They will give you a certain price and a market value, but if your car has got higher mileage mm. than the rest of the market or more scratches... Are these PCP arrangements, do they come with the sort of, you know, three years free servicing or free motor tax for a year or, or those kind of deals that are offered? Yeah, whatever deal is on offer in the car, it, it is a finance package separate to, the mo- to what's been offered okay. on the car itself. So that's why it's beneficial to the consumer as well because you're covered on, on warranty and various other issues. Who's financing it? The banks, uh, Bank of Ireland are the largest financer of it in Ireland, but the main financial houses are actually BMW and Volkswagen Group Bank. Because they have their own bank licenses in Ireland. Exactly. And you can understand that the model actually exists because car companies were finding that they're cash-rich companies. They're dealing with a lot of cash and they've got large cash reserves. So they were hoping in downturns in the marketplace to use that cash to step in where finance houses were being more conservative and they could lend to consumers to allow them to buy new cars when at the time, mm. particularly in Ireland, they came in, in in 2010 when there was very it was very difficult, no matter how good your credit rating, to get a loan for a car in the bank at the time. So, what are the pitfalls? The pitfalls are it's not your car, and that's one of the big things. Now, in legally speaking, it isn't your vehicle, so you you have to abide by the rules and, re- and regs in the in the uh, contract. And, and how does that vary? Let's say for you know the higher purchase or whatever other sort of financing arrangements would have been in place previously. Well, your traditional car loan is your car; it's to do with as you will. The car, the finance house wants its money back, and that's it. They don't they don't put a guaranteed future. They don't want to see the car again in three years' time. They want you to keep it and don't bring it next to nearest. They want their money back. Um, so you can add a new stereo, you can scratch it, dent it. It's your car. You're going to suffer whenever you go to sell it again. So 
that's the element. It, you, it is their car. You, you officially, legally can't sell it on. Of course, if you are in a BMW and you rock up to an Audi dealership, having heard what BMW will offer you on the, on the next deal for PCP, and you just want to find out with Audi, other car companies will organize in such a way that you will get the money to buy your way out of the deal from the PCP, like make that purchase at the end, and then they'll create a, a package for you as well. So, But legally, the contract is quite categorical in this and it repeats it ad nauseum that the car belongs to the dealer or the, the ultimately mm. the finance house and that's the catch you are driving someone else's vehicle Now I mentioned that the competition commission is taking a look at this market what exactly are they looking at? The big problem there is because of those stipulations as, as we spoke about earlier people may not be aware so the product it, it suits some people but it doesn't suit everybody and for people whose uh, income changes whose circumstances may be changing, they are ill-suited to the PCB scheme. However, the question is, are the people who are selling it, which, you know, you've been sold it when you've been sold a car as well, are they as well-trained? Are they are they You've been open? sold by a dealer, effectively. Effectively, yeah, dealer staff. So the dealer, and, the, and you know, the, as much as the dealer wants to sell finance, mm. their primary job is to sell cars. So they... The are they getting a commission off the finance house... In, yeah, they will be getting a commission off the finance house so as well. But they, that's, they're getting a cut from selling you the car and they're getting a cut from selling you yeah, the finance. But the main, so it's really in their interest to push this product. Well, they're getting a cut from the car loans as well. A lot of them will be getting a cut for, from the car loans. So regardless of whether it's a PCP scheme or whether it's a car loan, they will be taking a, a cut on the finance. But that's not their mainstay business. And their mainstay business is to sell the cars. The, and the, the model was introduced to, to because finance was becoming a hurdle to selling cars so this is the way to overcome any issues because it is because we're, you're you're borrowing based on the depreciation yeah. of the usage charge the costs are lower for example with that that BMW I just did a quick one there and even on a five year deal uh, to borrow the same amount of money for that three series BMW based for on on a 40 grand car would cost you about six to seven hundred over five years to borrow the same amount of money through a credit union at a five percent interest rate while with through BMW on a PCP with a five percent interest rate you're you're paying a hundred euros mm. less over three years now a lot of people will have a view that you know car dealers are a bit like Del Boy type carriages that's gross generalization I know I'm sure they're very professional people now and well trained and so forth but are they really the right people to be selling financial products that is a question that CPC or CCPC you're going to have to look at as well. Um, whether there are enough Chinese walls and whether the people are who are at the f- at the coalface, shall we say, they a lot of the dealers again. You, you mentioned that they have become very professional these days. They are slick operators. They do have separate staff involved in selling finance. So you will not get the salesperson at, at the most reputable dealerships. You will not deal with the salesperson who will then try and sort out your finance for you. There's a separate person who's trained to do that. The question is, are they there? Are their priorities getting the perfect package for you or are their priorities to make sure that you get finance, whatever, whatever comes and yeah. that the car is sold? And presumably this is all about loyalty for the likes of uh, a BMW or a Volkswagen or an Audi. This is all about getting repeat custom time after time and people constantly buying new cars and that's where the money is for them yeah I mean it's it, it's the perfect model the, the the dream of every car company is that you enter if we're sticking with BMW you enter in a 1 Series and they see you off from your motoring world in a 7 Series because they have got a car to fit your every need all the way through your life in, and you can downsize and upgrade and this is why they like to keep you because if you're paying the contract it's the same as mobile phones it's, it's the same as health insurance everything once you get into the routine they're paying a monthly fee it's very hard to get people to move back and forward and to flip brands and to change. And that's where the car companies hope that once they have you in there, they can fit your needs. The thing is that 
that's something that the, the CCPC has to look at as well. Are consumers understanding how easy it is to get out of that contract and flip to another brand? And is that in some way limiting the amount of competition on the marketplace? Because you may not know that there's a better deal and a different brand for a similar rival or whatever. Yeah. And that's something that needs to be aware now, of. Now, the reason we're talking about this, I guess, because the motor market is back, the economy is back and people are buying new cars again. But presumably Brexit and dropping sterling has made, uh, you know, the purchase of secondhand cars from Britain, probably new cars as well, from Northern Ireland or Britain very attractive um, so what's the market like at the minute? We've topped over 100,000 so far. Now we're in the middle of July, so we're into the 172s. The market is steady enough, but there is definitely, uh, the, the word on the forecourts is that there's definitely been a big impact on the sterling rate and Brexit and particularly in terms of... Big impact of on their sales. Yeah, in terms of used imports. So what, what are we looking at year on year? Are they up, are they down, are they're they sideways? Up, but they're up. But at the moment, they're not up as much as you would think considering the economy is recovering. Um, the 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 key figures to watch at the moment would be the used imports coming in. And what you're hearing is that people are foregoing buying a mainstream model for buying a used a high end, a higher end. So they're going, instead of getting a Mondeo, they are getting an Audi A4 and a used Audi A4 from the UK rather than buying a new Mondeo in, in, on, in Dublin or in, in Cork. Okay, and finally, um, what's your advice to anybody buying a new car and maybe considering PCP as a financing option? I think if you've got, if you can manage, the, if you're honest about your mileage, and if you accept that you will be able to meet those uh, monthly fees and you don't have any major upsets on the horizon, it is a, a worthwhile cons- a way to consider owning a car, or shall we say, uh, using a, a, a new car. Because invariably, a lot of people will struggle, it, yeah. will struggle to get into a new car and have the benefits of a new a new car ownership. It is, it's a worthwhile model for maybe uh, 30, 40% of punters. The big problem in the UK, and they're, they're particularly conscious of it, is that at the moment, the, cent- the uh, Bank of England reckons that the figures coming out from there is that 82% of, of cars, new cars being sold in the UK are coming through the PCP schemes. And you would think that not everybody in that cohort are in a position where they're, you know, they're financially stable and their life and their mm. mileage is... It's is about 30% market. in Ireland at the minute? At the moment, but we don't have proper figures because, again, regulation is one area that needs to be needs to be introduced here. Um, the CCPC manage it under the higher purchase arrangement under the Consumer Credit Act, but uh, Centre Bank doesn't actually oversee the individual PCP deals. They see they oversee the banks that are involved, obviously, but not the, not the individual deals. Okay, we'll see how that plays out. That's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Paddy Smith, Joe Brennan, Owen Burke Kennedy and Michael McAleer for their contributions. Declan Conlon produced the show with Rob Sullivan as sound engineer. Let me remind you that you can download this podcast for free from iTunes and it's also available on our website irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. And don't forget you can sign up to the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com. You can also follow the Irish Times business feed each day on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.